All right, folks, it's that time. Doors for Momentum Enrollment are going to close at midnight. So now is your chance. The price will never be this low again as I raise it every single launch and every year as the value in the community builds over time. So if you are looking for incredible momentum, if you want to set your 2020 business strategy and super smart systems, I really encourage you to join us. Now is the time we will walk you through everything you need to know to really take your business to the next level. And most of all, to join a community of friends, people who are rooting for you, holding you accountable, encouraging you, giving you feedback, weighing in on programs and products that you're creating. That is what I love about momentum and something that I look forward to every single week whenever I log into the community on Facebook. And as soon as you enroll, you'll also get five years of archives that you can just have a blast strolling through as you go. Remember, we do have a 30-day 100% money back guarantee. So if you log in, you look around, you start interacting and attending my twice monthly calls and you have a change of heart, no worries. No worries and no questions asked. We only want you to be there if you are jumping out of your chair with glee, excited. So if you are looking to free up time and earn more recurring revenue with ease and joy, I would love for you to join us. Just head on over to pivotmethod.com slash momentum. What's next? This is a question we're all having to ask and answer more frequently. I'm Jenny Blake, your host of the Pivot Podcast, and author of Pivot, The Only Move That Matters is your next one. For show notes from this episode, visit pivotmethod.com slash podcast. If change is the only constant, then let's get better at it. Here we go. Welcome back to the Pivot Podcast. I am so thrilled and excited to be welcoming Mike Michalowicz back to the show. Mike was here to talk about one of his previous books, Surge, in episode 37. But I cannot even begin to tell you, those of you who are listening, and Mike, you're here now, this man has changed my life. And I don't even think, Mike, you know the extent to which we met over margaritas. Yeah, you remember that? (laughs) Of course I remember that. Yeah. (laughs) Over an author dinner that my friend Dory Clark, our mutual friend, and in fact, it was the first Dory dinner that I attended. And so thanks to that dinner, I'm such good friends with Dory. And then you, Mike, have just been a friggin' game changer. We were, you know, we were sitting next to each other and uh, they're like, who wants drinks? And you're like, Margarita. I'm like, this girl's awesome. <laughs> and I look at everyone else. Everyone's like, no, club soda, please. I'm like, what? is this a group of wimps? Like what's going on? So then I'm like, like, I think we, yeah, we shared a guacamole and got a couple yeah. margaritas. I'm like, thank God there's someone here who respects Mexico because everyone else doesn't. <laughs> Although now I see and fix this next, which we're going to talk about today. It's a tequila gimlet. Talk to me about this. Oh my God. I love gimlets. Have you ever had one? No. So it's a margarita without the sugar. And oh um, so gimlet is a, is an, uh, a popular old drink and uh, all it is is a freshly squeezed lime in the, in the pure essence of it over ice and then the liquor of your choice so you could have a vodka gimlet or a tequila gimlet it's i'd say one quarter to one third lime juice freshly squeezed maybe a little splash of club soda but that's for weaklings and then your tequila or alcohol of choice and 
it, to me, it's the essence of a margarita without that sweetness that can get you kind of puckering and a nasty hangover. That's the best part. I know because a bad margarita, they're really too sweet. Way too even. sweet. Yeah. And they're packed with color. And, and you know. That's just, true. Yeah. Okay. We're yeah. going to have to do a, a like a five-year reunion, I think, of this of this dinner. <laughs> so I just got into old, yeah, we should, we, first of all, we should do that. <laughs> yeah. And uh, I've moved even on further now to old fashions. Um, so we got a bar at our house and I, it, it, oh, here's a tip. If you don't want to drink, don't get a bar for your house. <laughs> That's a good one. <laughs> yeah. So I, ha I'm this closet mixologist and um, now making drinks and to really nail the old fashioned, I had to go for probably 30 to 40 iterations and you can't leave a drink like abandoned. So, uh, I, I, I didn't, by the way, it wasn't like I drank made 40 old fashions in one night. This was over months, but, uh, then I really nailed it. And then it tastes so good. It's like, ah, I can't just have one old fashioned. I gotta make it for everybody. And then, so, uh, I noticed I was drinking more because of my old fashioned penchant. <laughs> totally. And then when you have this obsession and then it, you start to look forward to it, probably you're like, Hey, where's that? Oh, totally. You get the fireplace going and I'm a college football <laughs> fan. If there's oh, yeah. football, a fireplace and a bar, it's like, Oh my God, game over. I'm, it's, it's heaven for me, but it's also dangerous because I, I won't stop easily. Well, I'm happy to know. So this is the secret sauce that has you like churning out such brilliant books. Yeah, it's here. drinking. <laughs> <laughs> okay. We, we are going to get into your newest book, fix this next. Mm -hmm. The subtitle is Make the Vital Change That Will Level Up Your Business. And that's very podcasty. Yeah, vital change. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Oh, speaking of which, if you don't listen to Mike's podcast, Entrepreneurship Elevated, right? Yes, yes. You have yeah. so many. It's so funny. Like you just talk about having fun with the podcast. You're like, it, there's a soundboard. It's incredible. Yeah, yeah. And we, we play games. We, um, we do name the fake product and I make up a fake product among two other absurd products, but they're real and be able to guess it. And what, what's happened, Jenny, is it's caused this, this bifurcation of our listeners. We have half the community is like, I just love the content. I just want to hear the interview. Another half is like, I don't even listen to interview. I just go to the game <laughs> and the, the horsing around. So now we have, we split this community. We got to figure out how to manage both. Well, it is really funny. And I'm, it's, I was just about to bring that up because there are some times where I'm like, okay, skip, skip, skip. And I get to the meat of it. And then there are other times where it's so entertaining and it has nothing to do with you. It's like whatever mood I'm in. Yeah, of and course. I know you've, I know you've said that because it is, I could see how you'd have two different types of listeners that are in different moods when they yeah. totally, totally. They're very distinct. Yeah, and totally. And what we think is the new format that we're we're considering is uh, is changes that the the beginning part is just the interview and get right into it, and then the end part is the the, the fun and joking around because we that. kind of pack on both ends like an Oreo cookie. There's a little joking around and fun in the beginning and the end and the cream's in the middle, but it's a little bit hard to skip and navigate. So that's our little tweak. Where I love that. Yeah. I really love that. And then, and then uh, as Neil Pasricho calls it, the end of the podcast club. So then when you're joking around at the end, the people who have listened, heard the interview, they're in the end of the podcast club. They just love it anyway. <laughs> I like that. Yeah. You like yeah. that. Yeah. Yeah. You know, my wife listens to Dax Holly, uh, Dax yes, uh, Shepard. Yeah. And so I just, I've been listening closely to that and uh, it's just interesting how they package it. Um, I was just thinking about that show because yeah. he, he does a great job, surprisingly, even if 
any of you listening were not previously a Dax Shepard super fan, his podcast is amazing. It is. And they have his, his he calls his soulmate, which I wonder what his wife thinks about that. Kristen, um, her last name is escaping me. She's famous. What the heck is his um, name? Oh, Dax, uh, Kristen, uh, oh, shit. Right? <laughs> oh, my God. This is what with, Do not Google it. Whatever you do, do not Google it, because one of us is going to shout it out. Someone in momentum. We're, I can picture a, her face. I know. Too. She's in the- <laughs> no Googling. I promise no Googling. We just got to okay, think of it. Okay. I'll not Google. We need to call for an assist. But basically, Dax says, and now for the fact check with my soulmate, Monica Podwin. And I wonder, like, what is your, does your wife, is your wife cool with that? But um, they do a great fact check and she, she definitely calls out anything that he might have gotten wrong. So if we had a fact checker right now, they would be laughing at us and ready exactly. to go. Yeah. Oh, that's right. They do the fact check. That's right. Yeah. That's right. And I don't know, you know, the soulmate thing, like, like I, I think it can be perceived two ways. I think people can perceive it romantically, but a soulmate really just means, I think, in simpatico in a s- extraordinary way, but not necessarily around uh, romance. Right. You know, so I, I, I see how they could be. You're soul- cool with it. Well, it's yeah. just such a singular expression. My I know, soulmate. I know, I know. It's not like one of my soulmates or, you know, that's why I would, it's just funny every time I hear it, but hey, kudos. If, and I know, I, I'm with you. We have so many, uh, my friend Penny, we've done a bunch of podcasts, calls them soul groups or soul travelers. Like where there's really a group that all all of our souls have reincarnated together. You, I I started to say the intro, how much you've changed my life. I just specifically want to call out. And what's funny is that I actually blurbed Profit First when you republished it. And even at the time I wrote that blurb, I had yet to fully, I mean, I was way into it, but Mm. it's a gift that keeps on giving. So I have profit firsted my business, <laughs> then I clock worked it. And that was like the whole theme of 2019. And every time you write a new book, I'm just jumping for joy because I voraciously consume it. I can't put it down. And these are business books, people. Okay. And yet still, I can't put it down. So fix this next came out. And I was like, yes, we immediately are doing it for the Momentum Book Club, which this is our second pilot episode. Momo is on live. They get to come off mute and ask questions in the second half. So we're book clubbing it. I wrote to my team, like everybody needs to read Fix This Next. And they've just been my solace, my comfort, my guides. And most of all, like this stuff really works. It works. Thank you. Now I think you're like my soulmate. At least, yeah. So <laughs> I thank would be you. honored if that were true. It feels like, that I think way. you're my soulmate, but you're the one that's guiding me from afar. So it's Margarita's one of those weird situations. <laughs> yeah. What the, so um, thank you for saying that. First of all, I'm I'm honestly truly flattered. It's um, it, I don't know if I'll ever get tired of that. I, I've been so blessed now to meet readers and hear their stories of success. And I, I, I thought at a certain point I'd get numb to it, but it hasn't ha- actually the reverse has happened. Like I'm, I kind of feel like when Taylor Swift walks into a stadium and she does that, like, Oh my God, like, <laughs> you know, that's how I feel. Like I think, and I think she's being legit. Um, Cause I'm experiencing that too. It, it actually is so surprisingly exciting and happy that I feel but what what the essence is and the, the kind of the secret behind the scenes here, every book I've written is something that uh, I get inquiries from readers about. And, and this is the big and I also need it for my own business. Like I needed to figure out how to be profitable um, in the worst effing way. I needed to figure out how to run a business efficiently and uh, implemented it. And what I found is when you write a book, 
like you wrote Pivot, when you write a book, like you got to live by those principles. Otherwise, you're seen as a charlatan. Right. And, um, you know, that's a, man, that's not the right word, charlatan. But if I like, if I'm not doing clockwork, people are like what? If I'm not, if I don't, if could you imagine I don't use profit first in my own business? I'm like, yeah, everyone else needs it, but I don't. I'm like, no, like I live by every book I write. So it's become this, the ultimate enforcement mechanism for fixing the things I need to fix. I 100% agree. I've always said when you sign on to write a book, because the book kind of chooses you as this at the same it time. It's a soul thing, and you just sign up for that front row seat to whatever that topic is. Like if you, if you thought you were an expert when you started writing the book, just wait and see what shows up in life and business during the book writing journey, because that's when it really gets locked in. And there's, it's so bizarre. It's like, like <clears throat> I'll be writing and then like, like, like I have to start researching things because I, I, you need a story, right? So I'm writing something. I'm like, Oh, uh, how's this play out in like basketball, for example. And then, so I, I go down these, they're not even rabbit holes. They're, they're research holes. So here, here's an example. And I'm not sure which one of my books I included it in, but I was, um, I was working on, uh, one of my books. And I said to myself, like, what would they do in basketball to simplify? So I think it was clockwork. What would they, what would make the process more simple? And so I typed in like, you know, simplifying basketball and through this, this kind of rambling research, I come across this guy, I can't remember his name now, Pete, somebody who was the last NBA basketball player to throw underhand a granny style, (laughs) you know, like bending the knees and, and um, he was, one of the most prolific scoring basketball players of all time. And it was because of this technique, throwing underhand. Well, I don't know if it was Magic Johnson or Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, but some famous basketball player. There's only one basketball player ever to score 100 points in a single game. So that's unheard of. Happening in one game. And in that one game, say it was Magic Johnson, in that one game, he actually threw underhand. Now, you don't use underhand on the court. You use it when you're doing the free throw shots. But the underhand throw the mechanics are so simplified so if you throw overhand a basketball you you have two hands on it you have your guide hand so i'm right-handed my right hand would be the throwing hand my left hand's my guide hand both elbows are bent it's over my head i'm looking up i have to bend my knees and i push up with my knees i extend my elbows and flip my wrists so there's all these different kind of joints that are moving at one time well underhand you actually grab the ball over top that's the key so it's not under the ball it's over the top of the ball and you grab it and you simply bend at your back you bend your knees slightly and then you keep your arms extended in a perfect vertical vertical taunt line and you throw the ball and it gets this backspin but now the mechanics are you're moving your knees and you're moving your shoulder joints but nothing else no wrists no elbows and it reduces the variables and therefore the effectiveness is so much higher I was like, oh my gosh. So I include that story and I continued to research it. And I must have spent I don't know, hours and hours researching and, uh, and making some calls to learn about this, this process. And that's what I love about authorship. You, authorship, it, it turns us on these things like I would never have experienced or, or researched otherwise. Speaking of metaphors, you also, yeah. on that note, researched beehives. And yeah, I did, I did. In, in clockwork, the central metaphor is a beehive, but more specifically, finding one's own queen bee role. Yeah. What's the role that you and only you can do? Your unique genius. 
And how do, and, and I love how you say in that book, the queen bee role is a role. It's not a person. It's not. So I, Jenny, am not the queen bee, even though it feels that way of my business. I'm in the queen bee role, similar to you of thought leadership and big ideas and systems, smart, simplified systems and strategies that really make a difference. So we're very similar in that way. And I love how you describe your journey. And I've watched you on this journey of, I didn't know you when you started your big multi-million dollar businesses, but even with those, you say sometimes you have the same problems, but with more zeros on the end, you were still finding your ups and downs in this big roller coaster and getting in debt, getting out of it. And then in more recent years, you've recognized that your queen bee role that you're serving is really ideas and, and books and specifically ones that have super practical tools that help eradicate entrepreneurial pro- poverty. Wow. You really, yeah. You know, my whole shtick. I got um, your shtick, but yeah, I'd love for you to talk about making that transition for, for you as a business owner and how you've structured your life and your work to honor that role for yourself. So, you know, the queen bee role, uh, you nailed it is, is not a person and it's not even there, our own individual zone of genius. It's really what the organization's zone of genius is, which in a small business is typically the owner. So that runs in parallel. But at a certain point, if we want to leave our business in respect to having as a job and be a true owner of the business, the business needs to own that zone of genius. And so uh, the QBR, by the way, I, I translate that for, it's called biomimicry. Um, biomimicry is where you look at na- mother nature and you translate what she's done back to business or some aspect of your life. And the argument for the power of biomimicry is you know, mother nature has spent billions of years figuring out something um, you know, instead of us spending 10 minutes and, and, and shooting from the hip, why don't we take billions of years of research and employ that? So, you know, beehive, the analogy with beehives are bees are very efficient at scaling. And the critical role or the queen bee role of a beehive is the production of eggs. That's what matters. And the confusion with queen bees and also in business is, oh, that means the queen bee is the most important bee, which she's not she's just serving the most important role. If she fails to produce eggs, they will spawn a new queen bee and get rid of the prior one. So in my business, as I was doing this for myself, you know, you're writing a book, you're, you're, you're held accountable to your own book. Uh, we looked at our queen bee role. I, I found a way to identify it, by the way, for businesses that I didn't include in the book. Um, I only found this out afterwards and I'm pseudo desirous of rewriting that book, doing a revised and expanded version. I'm just not there yet. There's some, a few more things I want to nail down, but the quicker way of finding it is to identify what is the promise of your brand? Like what's your company's promise to the world? It's gotta be a singular promise, the biggest promise, the guarantee, the commitment or whatever you want to say. And so as an author for me, I realized that my commitment is to, make entrepreneurship simple or simpler to simplify the journey. So with that commitment, you know, entrepreneurship made simple. I even have that on my website now. With that promise, I ask, of all the things that our organization does, what one activity, and the QBR is always a singular activity, what one activity most supports that commitment to our clients? And for me, it's, it's writing books. I need to write books that make entrepreneurship simple. Now, just like you, I, I do public speaking, I do podcasts, uh, we 
just send out drip campaigns with videos and a little bit of content here and there. All these things are contributing to making entrepreneurship simple. But of all those things I do, only one can be the most important. And so I could say, I mean, it's writing books. I could say, screw writing books. You know, no one really reads anymore. I'm really going to crank up my uh, speaking engagements. I'm really going to be uh, just speaking all the time. And I'll write books, but they'll be crappy because I'm not going to spend any time on it. I would argue, in that case, I, I've now compromised my QBR. I'm saying, yes, let's not produce eggs anymore. Let's just, let's just live in the beehive. I will start to very quickly get a reputation as a bad author or a poor author. Like, oh, these books are hack, hack jobs put together. Yeah, he does public speaking, but his books suck. And my career, uh, my business, over time, would start to degradate and then die out. So the QBR provides the survival mechanism for the organization or the thriving mechanism. And so the, the flip scenario is that too, I could say I'm going all in on the books. I'm not actually, I'm going to stop speaking. I'm not even going to do any more podcasts, but I'm going to write life changing books. I'm going to put every ounce of my energy there. I'd argue my business may not scale the same way, but because I've devoted myself to writing excellent books, the, the heart of the organization stays constant and therefore the organization will stick around. So it was that, that realization of the importance of books. There's one last part is I've also realized I painted myself in the corner because I'm the one writing the books. And uh, if I'm the one writing the books, the day I stop doing it, the organization stops delivering on its QBR. So I can make two choices now. I can continue to write the books myself or I can find a way to do it alternatively. And one option is, is ghostwriting, but I uh, mean, you hire someone else to write your books, but it's just, it's so inconsistent with who I am that the authenticity would be lost and the books would not be the quality. So that's not, that's options out. But I discovered another option. There's these book series like uh, the, the four dummies series, for example, and uh, they're written by different books, but it's under one genre. So I'm like, Oh, I could write the four entrepreneur series. So I gave my first stab at this. I wrote a book called profit first, as you were talking about earlier. And um, now there's three or, or even four published derivative versions of Profit First. There's Profit First for attorneys, Profit First for contractors, Profit First for e-commerce providers, written by different authors under my brand, but required one one-thousandth of the effort because it was just giving them a little bit of direction on an outline and their officer races. But I still derive the core deliverable. I'm still benefiting a community, now a specific community. It's still expanding the brand. It's still generating more revenue. I don't have to do the work myself. So that's how I've, you know, at the end of the day, we have to make a choice. Once we identify clearly what the QBR is, do we want to serve it ourselves, which keeps us trapped because you can't grow beyond that. The company is stuck. Or are we willing to release the QBR for other people to do? That's what's been so interesting to watch in your journey, at least from what I've seen the last few years, where you almost now have these sub businesses. Yes. So there's a clockwork business, there's a profit first business, and now I see you shaping the fix this next business. Yeah, yeah. And I know you, Mike, have a, a shell company called Obsidian Launch. I do. But are you, what's it like running all these sub businesses, or have you taken yourself out so effectively <laughs> that? other people really own them and you have some kind of revenue share. Yeah. So I have in the different businesses to different degrees have removed myself. I will tell you the ultimate shortcut to do this, but may I say that's a cliffhanger. There's, it's actually just a changing of one word, which has been 
um, of the greatest impact on me and how my businesses operate. Literally just changing one word. Um, so I'll share that as my big cliffhanger after oh, I share the other story. So here's how it's affected me. My businesses, um, I don't operate them. For every business, there is a president, including for Obsidian Launch, which is a, just a simply a shell company. So I wrote a book called The Pumpkin Plan. There is a company that acquired the rights um, and gave me a licensing fee for that and then pays me a percentage of the revenue. What I need, my sole responsibility back to that organization is to sell as many pro, as many pumpkin plan books as possible because the greater the awareness around the pumpkin plan, the more uh, consultants they bring on. Profit first, the exact same arrangement. A little bit different. I actually have equity in that business, but that was just how we had to structure it. But um, there's a president for that company uh, and uh, that person's responsible. His name's Ron. He's responsible to grow Profit first to to its greatest effect, and I share in the revenue. Uh, and Clockwork, which has been the most efficient, uh, no coincidence there, but the most efficient uh, transfer of a business. Um, it was acquired by the license for Clockwork was acquired by Adrian Dorison, um, a entrepreneur in Florida, and built run like clockwork like her own organization around the license and they're 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 in their first full year into it achieved a million dollars in revenue um by providing training classes around clockwork the, they did they buy the license so there's a, a upfront fee and then pay me a percentage of revenue into perpetuity and my job is to simply um simply promote the books because when the, the more the platform it grows and the more awareness is around about that stuff, someone reads a book, the number, then the first question people have after reading a business book is, am I doing it right? People read profit first. They're like, okay, I'm, I read profit first, but am I doing it right? Or am I even doing it? I read clockwork, but am I doing it right? So these, these training companies and consulting organizations uh, become the outlet for it. And the last step was with Obsidian, which is the holding company for all the different books and, and licenses um, and, and certain what I call pet projects or guinea pig projects because I'm writing a new book now and we need to start guinea pigging it um, today. And so Obsidian is, is the test bed for it and we're, we're doing activity around that. That company has a president. Her name's Kelsey Ayers. And uh, they, she runs the company, the day-to-day operations, the, the HR, she leads all of it. And um, here's the cliffhanger. So I used to call myself an entrepreneur. It's my favorite word. It still is my favorite word in the English language. But the word entrepreneur has become so bastardized with hustle and grind and hard work and sacrifice and all this stuff. It's become the, the perception of entrepreneur is the polar opposite of what it was an entrepreneur is someone who organizes the resources around them to achieve a vision. So they organize their employees. If you have some, your clients, your vendors, your technology, all that stuff to achieve an outcome that you have set. And uh, since it's now has turned to hustle and grind, I'm like, I don't, I don't want to be the person carrying the business on my back. I've taken on a new label and it's shareholder. And so this is what I'm, I'm now challenging entrepreneurs, Jenny, to use. And I challenge you too, Jenny. Next time you're like a cocktail party or something and someone says what you do, don't say I'm an entrepreneur or an author or any of those things. Say you're a shareholder in a small business 
and uh, you know, watch that person spit out their tequila gimlet going, what? <laughs> what the hell is that? And, and my response when I started saying this was the same. I'm like, I don't even know what I just said. But what a shareholder is, like I own stock in Ford. When, when Ford sends me a distribution check, I don't go back down to Ford and say, hey, I got to work for this. You know, I got to work a few hours. I, what I do with Ford as a shareholder is I simply render my opinion through votes and then they send me a distribution check. Well, that's what my business is. That's what I want my businesses to do, that I render influence over them, direction, ideas, thoughts, votes, and then the business returns a paycheck to me. I don't want to be working within my business at all. And so that's, I changed that term. I've started to behave more and more consistently at that. Now, one last thing, the beautiful thing about being a shareholder in a small business is you have the right to insert yourself in the way that gives you joy. And I love to write books. I love doing the call we're doing right now. Like this is, I'm hoping people are getting value, but I'm, I'm just, just love bullshitting and, and talking about this stuff. And so as a shareholder, I have the freedom to do what I want when I want with my business, but I'm not beholden to support my business. That's such a powerful change. And, and I can see exactly how you've made that transition. And even how you define financial freedom is that you've accumulated enough where your money makes money. And that's yeah. a hustle, grit, grind, as you call it, trying to keep up with the entrepreneur Joneses. Is, <laughs> yeah, oh, you like that? Yeah, I no. loved that. I laughed out loud. I'm like, oh, the Penguin funny. wanted to cut that out. What? No. Isn't that funny? Well, you no. went through this. I think we had the same editor. Yeah. So you were writing your book. So the funny thing is, uh, there were a wonderful company. I love them. And uh, my, edit my editor was extraordinary. The thing is, they're not entrepreneurs. So when I saw that, they're like, no one will know what an entrepreneur Jones is. I'm like, <gasps> oh, it's what? so good. Oh my God. <laughs> I'm like, but it's, it's this, this need that this necessity we have as entrepreneurs to keep up with more than just our neighbors. It's our, the other entrepreneurs you can never satisfy. Like you don't get that. Mm -hmm. They're like, no, we don't think anyone will. I said, we're freaking keeping it. So that's good one on of you. like, 10 or 13, 10 to 15 things I, I fought for to keep. Thank goodness, because those little bon mots or make your books so funny and Thank personal. You. And, and Entrepreneur Jones is, oh my, we talk about this in Momentum all the time of looking at what other people are doing yeah. and trying to pull back from other people's launches or best practices or revenue. Oh my God, it's the worst BS. thing to do. Yeah. And, and so many people, because it is the Entrepreneur Joneses, there's so much bullshit going on. There's so much. So many people report their stuff and it's, it's just, it's chalked up with ego and artificialness and maybe not even with negative intent or harmful intent, just with proudful intent. And, and then the next person says, I got to do that plus some. And, and then oh, it's, it's such a dangerous trap. Well, and that. shout out to Sarah Santa Croce, who's in momentum. She has the, a podcast called the gentle business revolution where oh, she's cool. debunking all of that. That's so cool. And, and, and I don't have to tell you, you wrote profit first and you say it again and fix this next, that the definition of profit is cold, hard cash that the shareholders, there's that word, yeah. can use for themselves in any way they want, such that using it will not negatively impact the continued healthy operations of the business. That's a long thing for me to weave in to say that so much of the entrepreneur Joneses, people are reporting top line revenue, not profit. You can oh, totally. make a million dollars. What, look what happened with WeWork. You can earn a billion dollars, but if you spend two billion, you have no profit. You're in the red. And that it, does not get clearly stated 
on a lot of these online businesses. Of course not, no. And it is, it literally is that simple. It's, it's the, the revenue and the, and the money left over to the profit. And um, we think there's a lot more complexity, but if, if you make one bill and you spend two bills, you're done. Stick a fork in you. And uh, I, what I think also is people don't understand. I, I didn't. So let me, when I say people, I'm talking about me. I didn't understand that sales translates directly to stress. And here's what I mean. Here's the effect, and I'll tell you how it gets there. So the more sales your organization has, the more stressed out the owner is inevitably. And in, in the most cases, if they haven't mastered profit, it's a sure thing. Here's the reason. Sales translates to organizational responsibility. The more stuff my company sells, the more responsibility put on my organization. You know, I have to deliver on the goods or services now. Well, the more goods or services I have to deliver, the more weight the entrepreneur carries because most entrepreneurs are in the grind and hustle mode. So more sales, more organizational stress, which means more owner stress because they're the superhero swooping in, and which means the owner is going home having near heart attacks and uh, or literal heart attacks. The problem is, is, is we're ignoring profit. And many businesses think that we can sell our way to profit, which is even worse. We're saying we can, we can stress ourselves out even more, and one day some profit will magically arise. So I'm not impressed. I used to be, but I'm not impressed when a company says they do 1 million or 10 or 50 or 100 million. Actually, I just had someone in my office like, oh, we're a $300 million company. And I, listen, I, I, I don't roll my eyes and say, oh, like, you know, I don't think they're bragging. They just told me the fact, but I'm like, I, I asked them, I said, hey, what's the real number? It was funny. Um, the person says, I have a $300 million company. I'm like, oh, that's great. I said, but let's, I'm really curious about the real number. How profitable is it? Like, oh, it's a shit year. We're not doing so good. I'm like, oh, okay. So the reality is you have a business that's not doing so good. Now, that, that's something we can work with and resolve. But if we hide behind the gross revenue, it, it's, just, it's just a fog. It's just a smoked mirror. Thank you for sharing that. And, and that's profit first is you have to set the profit aside first for yourself. And by the way, if you go to the show notes for this episode, listeners, pivotmethod.com slash 160, I'm going to give you my financial modeling template, which has some profit first tabs. Always with you, credit to you, Mike. <laughs> so it's always has a link <laughs> to the good. book. Thank you. I, yeah, I appreciate that. Don't worry, but I've I found it helpful to pencil these things out. And even someone asked a question about what banks I use. That's not in the spreadsheet, but you can get the sheet, pivotmethod.com slash 160. And before we open it up, because this is our Momentum Book Club of the month. And like I said, the Momo's on live and they'll get to ask questions here soon. You were mentioning, you know, something that even you struggled with. And that's what's so, so, so wild about running a business. And I had this aha when I was reading Clockwork, but you really said it explicitly in Fix This Next. And in Fix This Next, you say, you know, the DNA for all businesses is nearly identical. Mm -hmm. It's the same problems with the extra zeros at the end. And you said, when it comes to marketing and branding, different is good. But in the basic structure, all businesses have the same biology. That's right. Now, 2019 was my big year of stepping back, restructuring, creating more systems, more scale, clockworking. Nice. Um, with Emith Revisited, Built to nice, Sell, yeah. Clockwork. You know, I had this really powerful combination of books. And I have to say, Mike, I got a little deflated at one point because I'm like, I've been here struggling for eight years to do something that is already outlined in every single one of these books that my business is no, it's not unique. It is yeah. not different. What the hell have I been doing for these last eight years? And I was just kind of honestly embarrassed like, that 
I even worked at Google. I went back, I listened to one of their early their earnings calls and I went and looked at the org chart as it was in 2006 when I started and I thought I worked at a company that is one of the most successful in history and I still why couldn't I figure out these departments for my own business like mm -hmm. I just I was frustrated so now you're turning into my business therapist but I know you <laughs> shared a story a similar one of a guy that had been in business 13 years that was like oh, why Jacob am I Lime still struggling Lemmer, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Why do so, we struggle if it's all so, if all businesses have 98% same DNA? Yeah. So uh, you're very human. That's the label. Um, we all do that. And I think the reason we struggle is it's human nature to throw complexity at difficulty. So when we are not achieving a result we want in the time we want, we will throw complexity at it saying, oh, the solution, I haven't achieved the solution where actually we just haven't had the persistence or patience. So a lot of businesses throw uh, complexity. The second thing is, is it's human nature to get into routine, which then becomes habit. And habit is a very comforting thing. Uh, there's a, a phenomenal book by Charles Duhigg called uh, Power of Habits. And he talks about this click whirl um, process we go through. And basically, we'll do a behavior uh, repeatedly because there's always a reward. even if the reward looks like a negative consequence, like so if someone smokes, I think he uses that example, everyone knows if you're a smoker, the consequence is ultimately your demise, um, you know, in, in potentially a horrific way. But the reward, of course, for smoking is, is not the long-term considerations, it's the near team term. It's like, oh, I, I felt a little bit chill, but relaxed, uh, maybe cool, whatever the, the psychological benefits are. So there's a short-term, there's always a short-term reward. So in business struggle, there's a short-term reward. A lot of us uh, that are in this kind of superhero mentality where we sweep in and do things, you get that pat in the back from someone in the office or, or you give yourself the pat in the back. Wow. I swooped in and saved the day again. It's the worst thing you do for your business long-term because it's so dependent upon you. I swooped in and fixed the day again. So I give myself a pat in the back. So maybe it's stuck. Many of us get stuck at that pattern. Then to get out of it, we, we say, well, I've been stuck here so long. If I want to get out of this, it can't be um, you know a simple change. It has to be complexity because we always default to complexity. So the only way to support complexity is by saying, well, my business is so different, so odd, no one can figure it out. And that's why I haven't figured it out. And so we, we put all these justifications and reasons. What I found in my research, both anecdotal and um, technical, that I, I would say 99% of businesses, all businesses are identical. So you could take a pizza shop and you could take a proctologist, and you could take um, a manufacturing plant, and I would say 99% of the process is the same. They're all actually manufacturers. All of them are taking uh, an input of ingredients. It could be the patient, it could be the dough, it could be the, the items. It's going through a sequence of activities and then delivering an end product or motion. So the end product for like a consulting business, like if I'm an accountant, what I'm delivering at the end of the day is maybe not a physical manufactured product, but I'm definitely creating an emotion of confidence, of, of direction, or whatever the sensations are. And it's the 1% that is unique. Um, but that's like, that's like humanity. Like if we, if we did the biological makeup of me and you and a thousand other people at the most molecular level and went through all, all of us, we'd see that we're 99% the same. It's only the 1% that we see the difference. Oh, male, female, because you can see the external effects of that. You can see the skin color, height, weight, 
but but that's literally the 1% of the difference. But that's the visual out, outward facing part. And so businesses are the same. When we look at them from out the outside, we see the 1% different, the weight, the, the sex, the, the skin color. And we place this judgment of that's a very unique business. It's very different. And even internally, you say we're very unique. You know, every person's unique. And uh, the reality is that's bullshit. People aren't that. I mean, we are unique in that 1%. There's a, 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 mod, a massive amount of differences there. But when it comes to the essence of the human makeup, we're the same. When it comes to the essence of business makeup, we're all the same. And the advantage here then is, you know, for humans, medicinal care, it's pretty much the same. If you have a headache, uh, you everyone can take an aspirin or an ibuprofen. Like, it, it works for basically everybody. And the reason is because we're all made the same. Could you imagine each person was unique and if they had a headache, they hadn't had their own medicine, it would never work. Um, this is true for business too. When a business has its proverbial headache, the, 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 the medicinal solution is the same. It's aspirin or ibuprofen. It's the, it's the exact same thing. So we just have to be careful about how jaded we are about what we see on the skin of a business and really appreciate that we're really all identical. And I think it's also, you know, momentum is a community for heart-based business owners. And so I talk about the difference. Oftentimes our businesses are not started with scale in mind, ultimate scale, or even being a shareholder. It's a personal need connected to a personal mission. And at least in my case, I was delivering services for the good first half of the business prior mm-hmm. to Pivot coming out. I was coaching, I was speaking. And as you said, even though I couldn't say this at the time, all those sales translated to me delivering more rather than working on the business, which yeah. is what 2019 was about. Mm-hmm. You know what's so funny is... Uh, Many businesses are founded with an ideology. Maybe that's that's a version of a heart-based business. Yet, we skip to that component. So in Fix This Next, I had those five levels of the business hierarchy of needs. And I would say when it comes to that ideology, we're talking about the impact level, the legacy level. But before that comes sales and profit and order. And uh, many businesses skip that. Now, in the in the most common or traditional definition of a uh, ideology-based business, I think of not-for-profits. And we want to eradicate cancer. We want to help homeless people. And they have this ideology. Well, they skip this impact they're having on their community right away, but they ignore sales, which for a not-for-profit is donations, funding, right? That's the equivalent of sales. Um, They ignore profitability, which even, and I've worked with not-for-profits, it's astonishing how they don't, grasp they have to be profitable that, that is their sustainability they got to run a business that actually is able to retain money to support the doors be the doors being open in the future and um, they don't work on efficiency so what they try to do is they build this massive ideology and it's like building a structure if you're going to build a five-story structure and you start building this massive fourth floor fourth floor but there's no foundation and there's no first second and third floor to put it on when you drop the fourth floor on thin air it comes crashing down and, and everything smashes. And that's why the failure rate is so high for not-for-profits. But that's why the failure rate is so high for for-profits because they also go in with an ideology ignoring the necessity of sales and profit and organization order. I would argue these heart-based businesses, the impact you're having is so important, but you can't do that without these other elements. They're a necessity. And the greater the impact you want to have, the greater you have to be at sales and profit and order. 
And if you ignore those components, you know, stick a fork in you. It's just a matter of time. It's just a matter of time before it's going to collapse. Right. And before it'll collapse or you, the founder, are burnt out. And I know... And resentful, you know? Yeah, absolutely. And it's not sustainable. And in fact, there's so, there's so much good stuff here. I wish we had five hours together. But the business hierarchy of needs is a pyramid uh, that yeah. Mike has translated from Maslow's hierarchy to your business. And just to recap for listeners in order, it starts with sales. Without that, you don't even have a business. Profit, order, impact, and ultimately legacy. And what I love actually related to this is that the first question of the whole pyramid is lifestyle congruence. Do you know what the company's sales performance must be to support your personal comfort? And I finally made a calculator for that in the spreadsheet that I've shared at at the show notes for 160, but I didn't do that. Like I never got crystal clear. And for, for me, I think that's the problem when you start out as a solopreneur or slash kind of a freelancer, you associate any check that comes into the business is mine. A check that comes in, yeah. I own, I, Jenny Blake own. No, it's not like that. So now I'm an S corp. I put myself on salary. I personally am only going to see a small part of that check because it goes to the operations of the business, the taxes, mm-hmm. the, the profit account, which I have, you know? And so the calculation and the number ultimately needs to be much higher to say, oh, what am I going to take home? Not just to survive and live paycheck to entrepreneurial paycheck, but to support personal comfort. Yeah. I got a call from, uh, Jacob Limmer. So Jacob Limmer. So here's one thing I do. I don't know, Jenny, if you do this. I, um, when I'm working on a book, I invite in my readers totally gratis. Um, I mean, they got to pay for their travel, but invite them in for a day or two, even workshop where I'm just going to, I tell them I'm going to share my most raw thoughts and ideas. And I want you to guinea pig and experiment with them. So it could be good. It could be disaster. I want your critical feedback. So I did this as I, as I was writing, fix this next, we do it. And I think about 30 people showed up and um, Jacob Limmer is sitting there in the back. He owns a roastery, um, which ironically, he <laughs> I mentioned in the book, he mocks the name of roasteries, even though he owns one. He's a co- he makes coffee and uh, he owns two coffee shops in South Dakota. And they've been around for, I think it was 13 years. And I talked about this lifestyle congruence and the necessity to correspond the sales of an organization back to the the founder or owner's needs. And my argument is the reason business owners start a business is typically for two reasons. Um, Either one or the other, or in most cases, I found it's a combination. One is to do something that brings them joy. So uh, as a heart-based business, um, you experience joy as you are of service or of impact to others. Um, you get joy out of the work you do as you experience it, as you see the effect it's having. The second part for m- most or all business owners is then uh, their life, the impact on their financials. Financial, what the definition of that could be financial freedom where we don't need to worry about day-to-day survival. So it's, it's impact or to be of service and to experience financial freedom. And uh, I said to you, to ensure this financial freedom component, you need to know what you need for your base survivability, the, the base level of comfort, actually. So you're not worried. I'm not saying like, you know, if, if, you, if you could make all the money in the world, how would you spend it and all the things you do with it? Just really just to support your current lifestyle as you define it as comfortable, what is it? And J- Jacob, being such a great student, he goes, you know, I'm going to do this because I don't believe in it. And uh, 
he, he reported back just his thoughts about hemming and hawing and like, this is bullshit. And he goes, I've been in business for 13 years. Do I really have to figure out how much I have to make at home? But every time you went through the fix this next analysis, it kept on pinpointing. You don't know what you need for your home. And, uh, he came up with what he called the, the mid, the Midwest lifestyle. He lives in the Midwest, South Dakota and, um, determined that for, and he's got a family, I think of two or three kids, $4,000 a month is adequate to support a lifestyle of base comfort for him and his family, roof over the head, food on the table, um, uh, enjoying the basics of life. And he, he called that number Midwest comfort, you know, in New York city, that number's probably a different number. But he goes, that's my number. And he goes, once I had that, and then I corresponded to sales, he's like, oh my gosh, our sales are actually at the right number. Like we have enough sales to support this. I'm just not extracting the profit. So it gave him clarity by doing that first step in the sales level. He then realized he had no other sales issues. Before this, he kept on simply saying, I need to sell more. I'm not making enough. I need to sell more. Once he realized what he needed truly to make, then he realized the sales are adequate to support it, but the profit isn't there for some reason. And he moved on to the profit level and subsequently resolved that. And as you said, when we mistakenly think sales are the problem, it actually creates a tremendous amount of more work for the entrepreneur and yeah. for the business and complication. And it's the most, um, it's the most common response. It's the most right. common instinctual response that owners say, I need to sell my way out of this. And that's what my gut's telling me. And what I've found is that our gut is a really, really bad uh, compass for a business. For, for our own self-preservation, I think it's actually very effective. But for business preservation, it's not. Because if you look at it from our own vantage point, like you, you are neurologically wired into yourself. Like you, Jenny Blake, if you're walking down a dark alley and all of a sudden you feel the heebie-jeebies that you're going to get murdered, please turn around and walk out. Because your senses, sight, smell, touch, all those things are triggering to give you this emotion saying, you know, fight or flight. Well, go. But our bit, we're not neurologically wired into our business. So when we get the heebie-jeebies about a business situation, we, we, we are neurologically wired into the business, so we just make this assumption. And the easiest assumption is uh, we need to sell more. Not profitable, we need to sell more. Not efficient enough, if we had more sales, it'd bring about efficiency. Yeah, you know, not, not having enough impact on sport, we need to sell more. Entrepreneur after entrepreneur reverts to selling more, which adds more organizational stress and actually puts the company in a more dire situation than a healthy situation. Mm. Thank you for, yeah, I want to put a pin in this because as I read the intuition section, I have thoughts on that. And it's something that I thought it was so funny how you said that. You're like, you cannot rely on your intuition for your business, right. maybe for yourself. And I do think there's a way to do that. To, but before we get back to that, if we have time, I want to open it up to Kevin, who's here live in our Momo book club. And Kevin has a podcast on the topic of burnout. So Kevin, if you could just come off mute, introduce yourself, tell us the name of your show. And uh, I think it really ties in with, with the person who's at the helm of all of this. So over to you, Kevin. All right. Hello. Can you hear me? We yes. can hear you. All right. Great. Hey, it's nice to meet you, Mike. Nice to meet you, Kevin. Uh, yeah, my name's uh, Kevin Joseph. I'm the host of the podcast uh, Talk Burnout with Kevin Joseph, where I talk to experts about ways to avoid and overcome burnout. Um, you definitely at work. Burnout is a very prevalent, prevalent issue. And so... Sure. Uh, talk to people and learn about different ways to avoid that and, and kind of get a handle on their own business and, and their own work. Um, so I had a question for you about your book. My favorite parts of the book were the case studies using the Omen method, um, which I thought was a very practical way of looking at business problems. Mm. 
Can you talk a bit about how you came up with that method? Yeah, yeah. So, uh, oh, it's so wild, by the way, Kevin, to hear you and Jane talking about the book because the, you know the book doesn't. I know this will come out near the book release, but as we're recording this, the book hasn't come out yet. So that's really, to me, this is super cool. Cause like you're the first person to ask me about the Omen method. Nice. Um, so it derived from, there's a couple measurement methods. Um, there's one called the OKR, uh, which isn't, oh gosh, I cannot remember the author. We used to of, use it at Google. Um, oh my gosh. Oh my God. <laughs> Outcome and key, key William. results. Oh yeah. It, uh, this is crazy. This happened to both of us twice because um, he wrote a book on it, but Google had been using it for a long time. Kristen so so Bell. Kristen, Kristen Bell. Bell. Yes. I knew oh it would hit me. Gosh. <laughs> okay. Good. Now you'll get this next one too. Yes, I'll get the next one. It'll come to me in about an hour. So um, whoever wrote it. And then there's, there's SMART, which is a very popular one, specific, measurable, and so forth. Well, Omen uh, is a consolidated version of SMART. Um, but SMART was, was designed to encompass also personal goals. And this is about specific business goals where there's a team element and, and, and SMART, which stands for specific, measurable, I think attainable, uh, realistic and time frame. I think that's it. Um, SMART was always was, so boring to me, by the way. Like, I yeah, never it's kind of boring and overwhelming and, and it's for an individual. So Omen was designed for consideration of a team. Here's what it is. Once you pinpoint the vital need of your business, you know, we need to, we need that we're having a problem with our conversion. We get enough prospects. We should have enough prospects, but they're not converting. So we have a conversion issue into making these prospects clients. That's the problem. Then you do Omen, which is the objective. Well, the objective is to increase the conversion, but we would give it detail. So say I'm getting one new client a month. Uh, I want to get five new clients a month because that would put me in congruence with my sales objectives once I understood my lifestyle congruence. So I need five new conversions a month. That's the objective. The M in Omen stands for the measurement. How are you going to measure it? And I already kind of specified it as I was saying the objective, which is five new clients. We're going to define it by a client, but you give it more specificity. You know, once the client makes the payment, so five new clients who've paid, that's the clear measurement of, uh, of the, um, of the result. E stands for evaluation and it's really just getting a frequency. What I found in some businesses is we don't set a frequency to check in on our numbers. So it's arbitrary. It's like, oh, how are we doing on sales? Like that's literally the conversation periodically or randomly. So with the evaluation method, we're going to say every week or every day or every hour or every month is the frequency we're going to check in on it. And maybe for this where we're looking at how many clients we engage a month, maybe monthly is the right setting. But for something like, you know, website traffic and you have a thousand visitors a day, maybe checking every hour uh, is better. If I make a change within the first hour, can we start seeing the impact it has? If I wait a month or two and that change was not effective or is negative, well, holy cow, uh, I'm, in pr I'm, I'm in trouble. So E stands for evaluation frequency. And then N, nurture, is the involvement of the team. How how can we allow ourselves or, or how can we get insights from our team to drive better results and give ourselves the flexibility to set new objectives or new measurements? You know, you have a pro there's some, one problem I've seen people do is uh, they write, you know, the company is going to achieve a million dollars more revenue this year. And it's, they arrive at it, however. And then the business is clearly not making that. Well, they, they then just say, well, we didn't achieve our goal. 
the nurture goal, the nurture objective is to say, well, hold on, we're not trending toward a million. Why? What's going on? Is, is there something wrong? Or maybe something's right. Maybe it's the way it should be. We need to set a new measurement. Maybe say that million dollars additional revenue was not the right setting. It should have been 250 and we realize it's because of this reason and setting a new goal. It's, a lot of these goals are so static that the result is either we achieve it or we abandon it. And that's a problem. It should be either we achieve it or we determine why we're not achieving it and then reset it. And that's what nurture is about. So it came out of studying these other goal setting methods. And this I found to be the best way to involve the team and to simplify goal setting. It came to me when you were saying nurture. John Doerr, yeah. measure what matters. Oh, gosh, you're on fire. <laughs> and you I didn't let myself look it up. <laughs> No, you can't. That's the rule. That's the rule, Jenny. Never. I didn't look it up. That's it. John Doerr. Yeah. Measure what matters. Measure what matters. Thank you for going through the Omen method. And you also mentioned something I just want to pull out and highlight, which is the whole point of the book, Fix This Next, is about identifying the vital need. And you say like the weakest link in a chain. If if one link is about to break, the whole chain is going to snap. And that's often what's happening in our business. So that's the vital need. And then the rest of the book are all these amazing examples using the Omen method. So I'm glad, Kevin, thank you for bringing that up. It's just funny, the, the weakest link. So I've been uh, teaching now, uh, I did a few presentations on Fix This Next. They're still very rudimentary. And as an author, uh, at least what I found is the first year of a book's popularity, uh, there's no speaking like on that topic. It really takes about a full year before people start requesting that for a keynote. But you want to start preparing a year in advance and presented it. And uh, it's so funny. So I talked to this one company. They were a $25 million revenue company. They were, a, a, uh, I think, a $6 million in profit, right? So that's a number that matters. So that's a 20% plus profit. So it was impressive. And they were just trying to fix everything at once. And I, I taught this process to him and the owner, his name was Mike too, coincidentally, came up and said, oh my gosh, we got to find our weakest link. And um, he then emailed me the next day and just determined it was in uh, the, the concept of, of role alignment. I talk about that in the book too, of getting everyone matched matching their talents, their capabilities to the tasks that need those talents, as opposed to matching people to titles, you know, your reception, your president, your sales, no matching people to their talents. And, uh, the, the impact has been extraordinary on the top line, but also just the engagement of his employees where before he was trying to fix everything. It's just back to your point. It's that, it's that one link that when resolved will strengthen the entirety of the chain. Absolutely. And I'm with you. I say on my team, I don't want anybody doing work that drains them. If you don't yeah. like the work, I'm not going to take it personally. Let me know. We'll solve the problem. We'll delegate it. We might get rid of it all together. Yeah. There's no reason that you to have talented people miserable. No, oh my God. No, no. <laughs> yeah. Um, Sarah Santa Croce, I mentioned her earlier of the Gentle Business Revolution, submitted yeah. a question. She said, I loved the book and especially the last part on heart-based promoters. It's the yeah. only way forward. I'm curious, what are your thoughts on the company of one? That's a book Paul Jarvis wrote. And do his systems, do your systems, Mike, apply to that concept? So what do you, what do, you do with people who want to stay small and company? Yeah, so a company of one, I have, to, I have not read that book. So shame on me. I have to presume it's about solopreneurs just based upon that title. Pretty or, much. or micro business, right? Yeah. So... I think the size of a business and the size of impact has no direct correlation and, and shame on me if I ever felt that way. I, I believe the smallest physical size business is going to have the greatest impact. And, and you've seen this, right? You've seen this in individuals that have this heroic impact. Um, 
I'm just picking arbitrary names and no religious focus, but Gandhi or Mother Teresa. Like you look at these people and you know, I would argue that Mother Teresa probably ran like you know a, a hundred million to a billion dollar practice there in collecting donations, serving the poor, serving the community. Um, so they, they were business people, um, but their operations, at least my very rudimentary understanding of of the impact they've done and how they did it, was a, an individual. But they they all had one big component, and it, it was a big mission, a big purpose that others wanted to be involved in or supported. There's a lot to about lead, leadership. Like everyone's a leader. Everyone and their mother is a freaking leader today. But I would argue that we all really thirst to follow. I do. And I think we all do. And I don't mean that in the negative contents, which sadly is perceived like a follower. Oh, you're sheep. Like, oh, you get pushed around. No, I want to, to, to get involved in something that speaks to me, but without having to create it, invent it, support it. I just want to contribute to, in a way I want to contribute. And so when I started this, this when, I, when I really got clear on my own purpose, which is to eradicate entrepreneurial poverty, entrepreneurial poverty is that gap between this perceived success entrepreneurs have and the reality of the struggles, that gap that I call entrepreneurial poverty. And I, I, I am committed to close it. You know, as I speak more and more about that, and do more and more work around it, there are more and more people who are getting involved in supporting it. Just, I think it was last week, last Friday, I, I did a keynote on, um, on Profit First, yet I think seven keynotes on Profit First were delivered that day because there was other people speaking on it. Two clockwork presentations were done by Adrian Seaman and so forth. And, and some of those people were speaking on Pumpkin Plan, the work I was doing. But they've taken ownership over it because it's not about Mike's book. It's about this mission to eradicate entrepreneurial poverty. And these people want to follow in, in a system that's already been developed. They don't want to recreate the wheel, but they, they see a, a, a part of their life's calling is complement in this arena. And they want to complement it by, by leveraging the system that's out there. So to, to answer this question a little more succinctly, hopefully is, it's not about how big the business is, it's how big the purpose is. And that has great impact. It's the purpose. Mm. And I, I think one thing that at least I'm, I'm finding is I've always wanted to stay small, small but mighty, but, and sometimes systems and, and a team actually help serve that purpose. Yeah. And so it doesn't have to be overly complicated, like growing just to grow or just to keep up with the entrepreneur Joneses, but for me, at least I did hit a point where I just wasn't able to have the impact and, and sort of scale and reach without getting a little more sophisticated in, in an infrastructure way. You know, I think small, when we say we want to be small, because I, I said that too, it, it translates really into an emotion. There's something behind that. It's really not the size. It means I don't want to... Uh, be stuck in a bureaucratic situation. Exactly. I don't want red tape. It's freedom. I, don't want, I was just thinking that. Right. And exactly. clicks. I don't want clicks. So th that's when I said, I don't want to be small. I don't want clicks. That was because I, I, my, my biggest business had 30 employees, which is a very small business. But once we passed about 10 employees, it started getting clicking, like the two factions and stuff. I'm like, I never want to go there again. And that was oh, one clicks. fear. The other fear was clicks like on a, on a, <laughs> on a URL or something. Oh no. Like, like, like a, a Q. Yeah. yeah exactly. sounds massive to me. So. <laughs> right. So I didn't want those type of clicks. And, um, 
so I've been saying, I want to be small, I want to be small. But then once I started to investigate, oh, the reason behind it, no, I don't want to be small. I just don't want clicks to occur. I don't want to ever be in a position again where I need to generate uh, the stress of generating money just to cover payroll was so overwhelming that my focus was just panicked about payroll. We had a $200,000 monthly payroll. And I remember like, gosh, if I don't get $200,000 in business in this week, I can't cover payroll. Like, I don't want that. So those are the definitions of it. And that, that started changing my mentality is I, I want to have great impact under these parameters where there's no panic about payroll. So cash flow has to be addressed the whole way and profit first is doing that now and no clicks. And so we are very selective of how we hire and how we engage our team um, to avoid clicks. Now we only have 12 employees today. Um, so we're not to where I was before, but we're click free as far as I can tell and staying there because we've been very disciplined about it. Um, so that's just the, the challenge I put out for anyone that wants to be small. You don't want to be small. You don't want certain things to happen and define right. those clearly. That's what it, it's, re it's very reassuring. It's also reassuring for me to hear you say you even may, having had 30 employees at one point, the stress of payroll. And, and I feel that as well, even with only me on full-time payroll. And I'm like, oh, I've got to make payroll every month. And it really changed something once that happened. And uh, yeah. I like I like hearing you. And I just interviewed Michael Mungay-Stanier, who's stepping out of the CEO role, CEO role, wow, CEO role of his yeah. company. And I love hearing about those of you, you know, you have so many, so much experience with different businesses, scaling, back like you're always sort of toggling and adjusting and yeah yeah it is comforting right so i, I like to hear those stories too I, there's this misperception i think it's, it's a human default that i have is looking at a person and and, and filling in their backstory for them right so I, i'm um i'm having dinner with uh dave ramsey in next month and um I had the whole backstory, like, here's this billionaire guy, and, you know, it, it was easy, blah, blah, blah. Um, but it's not really the story. And and the, he, he's not always crushing it. Things aren't always flowing. There There's struggles and mistakes. Um, but I I filled in the backstory, and, and, and I've done that, and I just picked his name because I think a lot of people recognize his name, but it's true for all people I meet. Um, but it, we, we've all gone through these these ebbs and flows. So here's something I've done and uh, I, I have this on me right now and I've had it on probably for the last two years. When I had this realization, like this, to me, this was my big realization about humanity. It's like, oh my gosh, that infinity sign is the human journey. Like we keep going and it's figure eight and all of us are on the same pathway. And while one person at the moment seems to be successful and one other person is down on their luck, you know what? they're exactly the same. We're just, we're looking at each other from different parts on this infinity loop and we can both serve each other. We're just in a different part of our own journey. It's all about sharing. And so, uh, when I, I'm much better now than, than filling in the backstory and saying, Oh, that life was handed to them and they didn't struggle to realize everyone's had their own version of struggles. And there's something to learn from everybody, uh, from everyone I meet, even if they look like they're down or luck now, they got something to share. Or if, if they look like they're successful now, they have something to share. We all just have this pathway. Um, yeah. So I don't know. I'm I, kind of rambling a little bit there. I, no, but it, I love the infinity loop as well. The infinity sign. And I've thought a lot about it on the creative journey where 
there are periods of, of, and even the business building journey of a super intense productivity, focus, flow, momentum, we're flying. And then sometimes after a launch, there's total and utter retreat, rest, sometimes burnout where you just collapse yeah. or you're in a, what Penny and I call a goose state or you just, you're just a goose state. I a like goose that. state. You're like, who am I? What is this? What is life? Um, yeah. I know we're almost out of time and I'm feeling myself like, Jenny, don't ask another question, but I'm actually dying to know. So maybe you can just give us a brief response before uh, we close out. You've written at least a lot of your recent books with a writing partner, AJ, who you thank in yeah. the acknowledgements. Can you just give us a quick snapshot of what's it like to write with a partner? Just what's your process? Oh, I think a best. lot of people don't want to write alone or they can't find the motivation to do it. And you've been so successful at it. Yeah. So, you know, there's this third option. So you can, you can write alone. You can use a ghostwriter who writes for you. Or you and by the way, I'm with part. you on the integrity about ghostwriting. Sorry to interrupt. I yeah. just, there's a ghost in your book. Like there's no soul in it. If, if you, if yeah. Oh, that's and a then, good way of saying it. Yeah. yeah it just and that person like, and then, and then you're putting your name on something that, I don't know. It's so weird to me. At least put them as a co-author. There's <laughs> yeah, and, and yeah, exactly. I, continue. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I don't, a ghostwriter doesn't work for me. So a yeah. co-writer is someone who writes with you and we do it in iterations. So I write the first version of the book, which is, you know, and it's not even a book. It's just this ugly vomit of text and then aj will kind of talk we'll talk about it and aj will compile it into this much more cohesive flow and then i'll write stories and back and forth and it starts ping-ponging back and forth the the result is a well i'm sorry the process is arduous so for me to write a book the average book takes me five years and um, so I, I have like people are like, how do you turn out a book every year or two if it takes you five years? Well, I'm writing four books right now. Like the, there's there's four different, you know, I, I have a book coming out in April 28th. That's fixed next. But I have another book called Different is Better. Uh, that's I'm preparing for the release in 2021, probably Ooh, end I'm of the year. I'm sensing another book club. <laughs> <laughs> different is better. Yeah, I'm Can't really, wait. I'm really pumped about this book. Can't wait. And I have the disadvantage advantage coming out, and, I, and so I have all these books kind of queued up. But AJ and I go back and forth writing on it, and you know AJ's job is she's an extraordinary writer, better than I am by far. So she can take when I write ten words, she can communicate that in six words as better. She's also is beats the drum on simplicity. She is, I mean to the point of like, I want to pull my now thinning hair out. Uh, and she's like, Mike, we got to make this simpler. I'm like, Oh my God, you cannot make it simpler. Like, Ugh! And back to the drawing board. So she forces me back to the drawing board over and over again. If a concept is not simple enough and holds me accountable for that. So, um, and we've agreed, uh, and it's appropriate that she's not going to be an author of the book. So she's not a, a co-author or author of the book. She's a writing partner and I give her accolades and attribution in every single book. Um, and she's built a business. She doesn't do it just for me. She does it for other people too. And has built a very successful business doing this. Um, so yeah, that's, that's AJ Harper. Amazing awesome. human. Awesome. Amazing. I love hearing the details of you do the first messy first draft and she simplifies. My dad's yeah, really good. He, he, we call it Occam's razoring because Occam is like the whole principle yeah. of Occam's razor is, yeah, if it can be said. I know, in, I know Occam's razor. Yeah, that's basically yeah. what it is. It gets to the most simple form because that's exactly. usually the solution. So we call it razoring. Yeah. Like, all right, dad, like razor this one, you know. <laughs> oh, that's cool. Razoring. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I, may, I may pull for that from you. if that's Please cool. do. 
Uh, I want to end with a quote from the end of your book. You say, your business is the greatest platform for self-expression and to be of service. It is a powerful force that when channeled will deliver the most miraculous experiences to you. If you could leave listeners with one, one fix this next, one piece of homework or something to try when they stop listening, what would it be? Um, I think the greatest thing I think they could do is really get clarity on purpose. So <laughs> I didn't include this in any of my books yet. And I don't know if I ever will, but one of the interviews I did, I don't recall the person's name as a psychologist. I was asking her, I said, how do you, how do you find your life's purpose? Cause I was trying to figure out you know, how do you translate life's purpose into a business? And she goes, Oh, it's, it's the big T or the little T. I said, what are those? And she says, the big T is a big trauma in your life. She goes, you know, for sadly, for many of us, we've experienced a big trauma of physical or sexual abuse or financial trauma, um, something to that effect. And she goes, that moment when you look at it is a defining moment that many of us will say, I will never allow this to happen to myself or anyone again. She goes, that is a call to purpose that to fix this for others and ourselves. She goes, then there's the little T's. I'm like, what's the little T's? Because that's the drip, the drip assaults. Like, you know, you're picked on in high school or grade school over and over again. And just at a certain point, that building drip campaign of trauma becomes this moment of, I will never allow this to happen again, or I will fix this or resolve it. And she goes, there's, there's one third, she goes, there's one other element that can happen for some people too, is the childhood dream. Like the one day I will. She goes, that can come a purpose too. And, uh, you know, for me, it was financial trauma. Um, it doesn't have to happen in your childhood, by the way. It can happen any time in life. Um, but the, the uh, financial trauma happened to me, and that was the moment I said, oh, my gosh, I'm never going to allow another entrepreneur to struggle like I did. I'm never going to allow myself to struggle like that again. And I realized it was more than just financial. It was always other areas of working my ass off and, and those other things I was sacrificing life itself to our business. So I just encourage everyone spend time finding your purpose. And it's not, at least for me, it wasn't like, Oh, next morning I woke up and I got it. I mean, it took years and years of thought, but if you start investing time and in thinking about your purpose and maybe you already know, it, but if you start thinking about it and then you build your business around that purpose, you become unstoppable. Like I would, I would rather take on Jeff Bezos uh, than take on someone that's that's devoted to their purpose. That purpose person, because Jeff Bezos, I'm not picking on Jeff Bezos here, but but some someone with wealth um, will exhaust those funds. Purpose is unexhaustible. That is someone that can't be defeated. Amazing. Mike, thank you so much. And listeners, don't forget, you can get show notes and the template from this episode, pivotmethod.com slash 160. And please go out and pre-order. This book is out in April. So let's all support Mike's launch. Pre-order the book. It's called Fix This Next. And even better is on launch day, leave an Amazon review. So it's out April 28th. And that's I don't think, well, maybe listeners, maybe you know, but it is such a boost for authors like Mike and he's been so generous. You've been so generous with your time and let's help him out as much as we can because Mike, like the reason I'm still in business is (laughs) such a large part. Thanks to you. Thank you so much. Jenny, thank you. This was so much fun. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of the Pivot Podcast. Make sure you don't miss an episode or my insider tips and templates by signing up for Pivot List, 
a curated twice-monthly newsletter where I share the inside scoop on what I'm reading, watching, listening to, and the latest tools I'm geeking out on. Sign up at pivotmethod.com slash pivotlist. Get show notes from this episode at pivotmethod.com slash podcast. And connect with me on Twitter at Jenny underscore Blake. Remember, build first, then your courage will follow. Hasn't it always? 